Around the world, species are going extinct at a rate faster than ever in human history. There's no ecosystem in the world that's left untouched. Coral reefs in the oceans, trees in the chill Pacific Northwest, bugs in the Amazon, 40% of amphibians, and one-third of reef formation corals and marine mammals are threatened. The average abundance of native species on land has fallen by 20%. Around one million species of plants and animals are close to extinction. Why is this happening? Is it due to climate change? To deforestation? To pollution? Or to disease? How will this affect the Earth, and us as humans in the long term? And what can we do about it? This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find out more about the podcast at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, economy, politics, ethics, culture, and our lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Spark Dialogue Podcast continues to operate with the support of listeners like you. For the people who are supporting this podcast, I will be posting some unique content provided by our guests. If you want to become a supporter of this podcast, you can check out more information at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Hi, I'm Pam McElwee. I'm an associate professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Hi, I'm Alex Faf. I'm a professor at Duke University, an environmental economist in the policy school. I'm Kai Chan, and I'm a professor at the Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Every ecosystem on the Earth has been affected by this change. Corals are among the most threatened species on the planet, um, and that, that's because of what we know about how coral reefs are being so strongly affected by not just climate change, but also a wide range of other human pressures. Other groups that have a large number of threatened species include cycads, which are a kind of plant, and conifers, but, uh, and then amphibians. But really, it's a large number of species across all different kinds of groups, and, and we, have to, we have to recognize that we know a lot more about some groups than we do others. There's a couple of really unique ecosystems that our report showed um, were really heavily affected by human uh, use and alteration. And a big one there is wetlands. Wetlands are really important for a lot of different species, obviously, but they're also really important for humans. They serve really important roles in um, helping us uh, filter our water, um, potentially buffering uh, coastal areas from storms and so forth. So when we eliminate wetlands and pave them over or turn them into urban areas, um, we lose not just the species, but a lot of benefits for humans. So there's there's ecosystems like that where we're talking not just about animals and plants and so forth being in danger, but we're really putting our human um, civilizations potentially at risk at some of these ecosystem alterations. Why is this happening? Unfortunately, the answer to that is complex. Most of these are driven by human behaviors. Understanding these behaviors is the first step into doing something about it. There's certainly uh, an official ranking in terms of the types of causes that are leading to losses. There's changes in land and sea use. There's direct exploitation, such as you might think of, you know, directly fishing, climate change, pollution, and the invasion of alien species. Um, that's a, sort of a big summary of the impact of a lot of behaviors. 
that's fishing, that's forest, that's farming, that's harvesting, that's mining, that's infrastructure, that's tourism, that's migration. So there are many, many human behaviors that are invading. And I guess I would say that each of those is subject to a significant increase in human population, a significant increase in migration around the globe, a huge increase in trade, so that we're affecting different parts of the globe from where consumption is happening, changes in technology, changes in income, so that people are consuming more. All of those things are pretty important drivers of increasing human effect on nature. I think for myself, trying to worry about how would we change it is asking where does the pollution come from? Who is doing the direct exploitation and why? Like, for instance, hungry people who need to eat. So I think pretty quickly we move down to sort of what are some things you would recognize from the newspaper. Illegal wildlife trade happens to be important in Vietnam. Uh, soy production happens to be important, and in particular, beef production in the Brazilian Amazon. So broadly, you're talking about just human production, often for, you know, basic eating, sometimes for more luxury consumption. This fishing is a, is a huge direct extraction. Farming is, has immense effects on land use. Forestry, uh, mining is ever increasing in impact, even if perhaps not as large in footprint. Uh, investments in infrastructure facilitate all this. Um, and, and even then, uh, we want to ask where are those things coming from? And again, changes in income, changes in population, changes in migration, and changes in trade uh, spread all those impacts around. So de depending on where you're looking and where you're trying to make a difference uh, and which behaviors you're trying to change, that will point to some policies are likely to work better than others. Added to that, it's often difficult to trace back exactly what is the cause, because the results to the ecosystem are not immediate. Species have lags in how they experience the pressures that they're faced with. So in, in the case of many species, it'll be decades before you notice that their populations have really decreased in order to understand in better detail what is happening and what we can do about it, it's important not to take a one-size-fits-all approach. What is happening in tropical Asia may be very different than what's happening in industrial Europe. In understanding what is happening and what we can do about it, specialized local knowledge is often necessary. For example, Pam is an expert in tropical Asia, places like Vietnam, Burma, and Indonesia. In the case of Vietnam, where I've been working for more than 25 years, one of the big problems um, that we're seeing there is direct exploitation, basically illegal wildlife trade. Um, Vietnam's a real hot spot for that. Um, some of it's consumed in Vietnam, some of it's exported. Um, Vietnam's just the middleman, it's exported to an end user in China. But it's essentially contributed to um, what ecologists know as, as call empty forest syndrome where you basically may have um, what, what looks on the surface like a functioning forest, but it's completely devoid of certain types of fauna, certain types of flora that might be in the illegal trade. So the, the overall global patterns, I think, are very similar among regions, but then each country might have one of the drivers sort of jump out as particularly important for them. Um, so for Vietnam, direct exploitation is a huge issue, and it means they have to really grapple with it in, in policy formulations and enforcement and so forth that might be different from another situation. If we sponsor new roads, which we're going to be doing around the world in the next couple of decades, 
they have really different impacts in places like India uh, than they do on the Brazilian Amazon frontier. So how does decline happen? Are predators at the top of the food chain the first to feel the hit? Or is it the insects? Or perhaps it's the plants and the trees? Often it does start at the top of the food chain, but often we don't notice how much is affected by those losses of top predators until, in many cases, decades and sometimes even centuries after we've experienced that loss. Um, in other cases, it's, it's ecosystem engineers, which would include species that are lower in the food chain. So, um, you know, so th with the top predators there, we're thinking about sea otters, we're thinking about orca whales, great weight sharks and other kinds of sharks. But then the ecosystem engineers would be the, the habitat forming organisms. So mussel, mussel beds and, and oyster reefs are really important habitat for uh, a wide range of organisms, as well as providing crucial ecosystem functions in terms of filtering the water. And the loss of those ecosystem engineers has been really crucial in estuaries and bays around the world. In order to deal with the decline, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, also known as IPBES, compiled a report that addresses the nature of the decline and what we can do about it. This report is truly impressive. It's over a thousand pages long and compiles the knowledge of over 450 authors from 50 countries. It takes knowledge from scientific reports, governmental sources, and even indigenous knowledge of an area. Our guests today are some of the scientists who contributed to this report. The Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services is really a mouthful for most people, but a lot of people characterize it as the IPCC of biodiversity. That is, we're like the climate change panel in that we have to provide regular assessments of the state of biodiversity and ecosystem services. Um, and so these reports are done by a large number of scientists from around the world who are nominated by their member governments. Um, and we come together uh, once a year. This particular report took three years to do. We write the report. And one of the things that was um, really great about this process is it brings together scientists from different disciplines. I'm a social scientist by training, um, and we work side by side with ecologists and modelers and so forth um, to really provide a very comprehensive view of the state of nature. Um, and it's also great for folks from developing countries and developed countries to be working side by side. So it's really comprehensive in that sense. Some of us had chapter meetings, and then all of us were working continuously between meetings, um, often catching up by Skype or, or by email with our author teams. Governments are a big part of this, and, and that may be known to all in terms of the IPCC, but this, is, uh, this had to get approved by representatives of all the governments. And, and I happen to think that's super important because I think there's some sense in which the idea of facts and science is questioned. And, and I think this is a heck of a lot of facts uh, and perspectives on them, uh, ways of presenting them, ways of organizing them that have been agreed to by people from a bunch of different countries and with government approval. I think that's important. More than one third of the world's land surface is being used for crop production or livestock grazing. Think about that for a moment. 
That means every acre that's on a farm is one acre less that can be devoted to forests or to natural habitat. But at the same time, people need to eat. Food production was a big part of the analysis. You know, thinking about how nature contributes to food production, not only in terms of helping to build healthy soils, but also in terms of pollinating crops and in terms of controlling pests on those crops. It's about 39%. I mean, it depends on how you count it, but about 39% of the land area that's devoted to agriculture. And, and, um, and, but it's important to realize that that's, that's actually a, a lot of the most productive areas of the planet, right? So, so much of the land area on the planet is not very good for growing crops. Um, when you think about the, the land service of Canada, you, you'll probably know what I mean, right? It's, we've got not only mountains and, and glaciers, but then we've also got tundra and boreal forest where you know, the growing season would be really short. And same is true, of course, in, in Russia. So when we think about 39% of the land area that's devoted to agriculture, that's a, a lot of the most productive land that is already um, working hard to produce food for people. We can't just blindly cut farmland without running the risk of increasing the hunger in parts of the world that are already undergoing starvation. We need to be smart about it. There is some sense in which we hope that more intense, say, agricultural production, uh, and, and there are a lot of trade-offs in all these choices, such as uh, getting more uh, higher yield uh, on the farm, perhaps through the use of more intensive inputs, can lower the total amount of land used to produce a given amount of food. Uh, that I think, I think many people would say, you know, doing that in an effective, environmentally uh, successful way uh, could be quite important. Um, I'll just say that when you get to trying to implement those things, almost always there's a lot of trade-offs, such as if that only happens in richer countries, do the farmers in poorer countries come off uh, worse off? Uh, so. So getting into policy solutions tends to involve trade-offs, but I think changing the amount of land and lowering it for grazing and, and farming is globally uh, probably going to be part of the solution. I imagine it's somewhere in the things that Kai's group talked about. In each country, there is a different natural environment, climate, weather, and soil conditions. Some countries rely heavily on imports of crops, while some need to eat more local. The solution that's being used for the richer countries would also need to be different than what is being used for developing countries. A lot of the progress, for instance, that you might see in environmental quality in richer countries can come because we're importing goods that were produced with nature's degradation in poorer countries. And in fact, probably running down the soil quality there. So I think the thing you're raising that uh, in the end, uh, uh, people are going to need to eat, including poor people. And how do we have them have incentives in achieving their consumption, but achieving it in a way that's less degrading, I think that is going to be central. Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, also did a report this summer, a couple of months after our biodiversity report, um, and I was part of that report, and that was a report on climate change and land. And so that also highlighted these questions of um, we've altered, you know, 70% of the, the global ice-free land surface um, through human intervention, and a lot of that is for food production. Um, how are we going to continue to feed people, not just in light of biodiversity loss, which is what the biodiversity report talked about, but how are we going to feed all these people in light of climate change? That's what this climate change report looked at. 
So it, it, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, you know, the impacts of environmental change, both on biodiversity, but also on our atmosphere. But it just highlights the dilemma that we're in. The solution to feeding people while being smart about land use takes into account so many aspects of our society. It takes into account where we get our food, our economy, our trade laws, and our politics. It takes into account our science. How can we make the most successful abundant crops? It also takes into account the differences between the daily life of a farmer in Africa versus one in the Midwest. There are all kinds of different human enterprises and, and goals for sustainability entrenched in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, as well as the IG targets for biodiversity, where when we strive to make progress on one of these goals, then we actually can unintentionally undermine the other ones. So you talked about this kind of trade-off between land for agriculture to grow food for people and maintaining land for natural ecosystems. We've also got the problem of climate mitigation, where under the Paris targets, it, the proposal for the way to reach the Paris targets for climate mitigation include afforestation and other land-based activities, including a, a large scaling up of renewable energy that would take land either out of production or out of natural ecosystems. So, so all of these goals are, are really closely intertwined. We did a comprehensive nexus analysis where we thought about how to achieve a whole bunch of these different goals that have been thought of largely separately. So how to feed humanity from both agriculture as well as from the oceans and, uh, and, and lakes, etc. How to maintain freshwater supplies for those productive activities as well as for direct human consumption. How to resource growing human cities and all of the mining, etc. that that entails, as well as how to maintain that space for biodiversity across all of those ecosystems. Um, and so, you know, there, there are really strong interactions. It was interesting to note that within each of six different focal areas, many of the solutions that were proposed were ones that had the strong potential to have negative impacts on other sustainable development goals. Um, and so what we did was we, we identified those solutions that were most promising for not only addressing the challenge, say, of feeding humanity, but also of doing it in a way that doesn't make it harder to mitigate climate change and to meet goals for biodiversity, et cetera. Now, those solutions are solutions that address demand and the demand side. So the amount of products that we're consuming and, and, and that entail negative impacts on ecosystems, as well as changes in institutions. So the way that we that govern and manage ecosystems and, and extractive and productive activities um, and the way that we manage our whole economy, really. The multiple goals include environmental goals and social goals. The, you know, the sustainable development goals inherently are oriented around, you know, people doing okay and nature remaining okay or, you know, degrading less. So, so I think that tension is, is very central. Just to give you an example, I think there's a strong spirit in some of Kai's groups in chapter six of thinking that if you're going to achieve multiple goals, you're probably going to have to use multiple tools. And amazingly, you might have to think about how to combine them. To give an example, uh, we are definitely going to invest in road infrastructure to help economies. And we'll probably do it to big cities because they're centers of innovation where we may get the most output for humans on a small amount of land. But 
we know that when we open up big frontiers with roads, people spread out and they cause a fair bit of damage to ecosystems. So we probably are going to have to think about how do we effectively zone space so we use new protected areas near new roads or new local payments to poor farmers to have environmentally beneficial practices now that they're newly in range of a market because of a road. So I think there's a strong spirit in which we want to realize that we face these tough trade-offs and almost surely we're going to have to intelligently combine the right and the left hand, think about development policies with environment policies to get the blend. 60 billion tons of resources are extracted from the earth every year. This includes things such as lumber for trees and resources such as coal, oil, copper, marble, and other products of mining operations. Mining and deforestation leave their own scars on the planet. Forests that are cut down degrade natural ecosystems, and mining can impact the natural quality of the land for centuries to come. Part of the way that this can be dealt with is to try to restore the land to its original condition. Of course, this is done with a range of success. Many times, operations or countries have in place funds to restore the quality of land after the operations are finished. New trees can be planted, open pit mines are covered, and then reseeded. Restoration is an incredibly important part of the agenda. We're just about to move into the next decade, um, which the UN has designated the decade of ecological restoration. So they're really emphasizing this as a potential tool in our toolbox. Um, but it's important to sort of put that in perspective, which is uh, a lot of people want to, I think, use reforestation, um, particularly around um, helping us get out of our climate change problem, because we know that um, trees are one of our best way to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I think too many people want trees to be a sort of get out of jail free card. Um, if we just plant enough trees, then we can deal with our, our extensive use of fossil fuels. And that's just not going to work um, for all of the reasons involving trade-offs um, that my colleagues just talked about. So there's just not enough land surface on the earth um, to plant trees to get us out of our climate problem, you know, let alone our our sort of species and biodiversity problems um, without running into trade-offs around food production, around um, ecological integrity and so forth. Certainly there's a role for reforestation um, and restoration, but I don't want people to underestimate how challenging it's going to be and the fact that it's not going to solve all of our problems. So I, I can give an example in Vietnam where I've looked their reforestation programs, and they're a great example of a country that decided to spend a lot of money on reforestation because they thought it was going to get them a lot of benefits, both for climate um, and also for sort of general environmental services. And so from about 2000 to about 2015, they spent more than a billion U.S. dollars on reforestation projects. I mean, that's a huge amount of money for a country as poor and small as Vietnam is. And so they expanded the amount of forest cover in the country. It went from about, you know, sort of 26, 27 percent to close to 40 percent now. But if you actually look at what happened on the ground, most of that was achieved through planting fast-growing exotic species like acacias and eucalyptus. Um, so you didn't get any environmental benefits. Those are trees that grow in monocultures. They're actually very susceptible to climate change, drought and storms and so forth. So there was a trade-off, right? They actually got the forest cover 
Um, some people got some social benefits in terms of, you know, being able to sell trees, these fast growing trees really quickly for money, but they didn't get the environmental benefits. So that's the sort of trade off that you have to weigh when you're talking about reforestation and restoration initiatives. It's not just deforestation and mining. Human activity has affected a huge amount of land and the sea. Three-fourths of the land and two-thirds of the sea have been significantly changed by human activity. That doesn't just mean that you have to wander farther away to have a secluded hike in the wilderness. It means that animals, plants, and insects, water, soil, and air, all are altered by the things that humans have done. Restoration is really important, and, and it's we found lots of examples where there was great potential for ecological restoration to boost multiple goals. Um, but it, it is really important to note that there are loads of ecosystems around the world that we have begun to take for granted the kind of degraded state. And so this includes not just the degradation of land, in particularly on, on steep or marginally steep slopes, where there's been a lot of erosion and a, and a loss of vegetative cover, but also in, in marine systems, with fisheries, in, in estuaries and bays, etc., where many of those ecosystems have been so drastically transformed by human activities, including the loss of the top predators and the loss of those ecosystem engineers, that they are nowhere near as productive as they used to be or as they could be. And so thinking about how to how to meet these multiple goals, well, if you can restore ecosystems, you know, thinking now in the marine context or in lakes, for example, if you can restore ecosystems that make them more productive and also bring back key species and, and make the system better nourish those species, then you can help to address both challenges of um, food production as well as those biodiversity considerations. There are so many more things that are happening. Overfishing is a huge problem, with only 7% of marine fish being harvested at sustainable levels. There are complete dead zones within the ocean caused by the accumulations of plastics, industrial waste, sludge, and fertilizers that are dumped into the waters of the earth. These dead zones are massive, with a cumulative size of larger than the United Kingdom. And then there's the question of energy. Mining coal and oil has its effects on the natural surface of the earth, as well as resulting in pollution and climate change down the road. But sustainable energy also has issues. Rivers damned for energy affect animals and plants, both in the water and on land. Windmills affect bird migratory patterns. The report touched on all of these issues and more. So what can we do about it? Sometimes we're tempted to do something, anything. While this is good, it's important to realize what our motivation is. Is it just to alleviate our sense of guilt? If this is our motivation, we might think that if we do something, it's good enough. We've done our part. But we can't just do something and hope it works out. We need to be smart about it. We need to do the right something. We need to see if our actions are actually making an impact, and if not, we need to change them and do something different. Maybe the one thing I'm most concerned about from this report is that, at least in broad communications, it just has the sense, you know, do something. But I, what I fear is that it sends a message, as long as we do something, it'll work. And I think 
I think we need to recognize that a lot of policy haven't really worked so well. So I think there's many good ideas of what we want to achieve, and we would do well to look closely at when our past policies achieved what they are intended to and when they didn't. We've ideally gotten to the point that we recognize it uh, is bad enough that we actually have to not just say, oh yes, we're doing something and be happy that we acted, but do the hard parts of, uh, as chapter six of the report said, getting two different ministries to work together, getting people to actually use the science, getting people to pay attention when things don't work, None of that's rocket science, but it actually takes pressure to bring it to real action. So uh, we've had decades and decades of saying we should do something and even doing things. Uh, if we're going to get something done, we have to realize it's enough of a crisis that we need to have sustained pressure on policymakers to, to do the smart things. The report delved into what we can do, solutions tailored to the countries of all types and sizes, on all governmental levels, industrial levels, and societal levels. So there were two kind of solution chapters in the assessment. There was chapter five, which was on pathways towards sustainable futures, which takes a broad brush, kind of large, big picture view of, of what's needed to change. And then there was chapter six, which dug much more fine-grained into particular governance and policy options. Um, and so Pam was on chapter six. I was one of the coordinating lead authors on chapter five. In chapter five, we identified from that analysis. So we called it a nexus analysis that included those six different focal areas, you know, feeding the world while resourcing cities, while mitigating climate change, et cetera. Um, from that analysis, as I said, we pulled out those solutions that, uh, that were most promising for addressing not just one area or another area, but collectively all of them. That yielded what we thought of as five different levers that were particularly important in terms of governance interventions or policy tools that were really important for helping to bring about the kinds of transformative changes that are necessary. And then eight different points of intervention. So places in the global social economic system where you would be most best poised to intervene if you want to bring about those changes towards global sustainability. One of them is changing incentives and subsidies, where at the moment in many nations, a lot of money goes towards enhancing the extraction of natural resources or the production into products um, without much attention to the negative effects that that production or that resource extraction has on ecosystems. And so changing the focus of that spending such that it is a crucial requirement or goal of that spending of those subsidies to protect the ecosystems on which those activities depend and, and which are impacted by those activities is a really crucial step, just as one of the 13 examples. That's the first lever. Another important part, just to pick out one of the leverage points, is, of course, addressing consumption. And, and when we think about consumption, we're talking about consumption that includes population size, which is massive and growing human population size, as well as per capita consumption, 
and the, and the impacts of that consumption, as well as the waste, right? So there, there are multiple different entry points to what is effectively one part of the problem, which is total consumption globally. Small nations might not always have the resources they need to help the environment while also feeding and providing resources for their people. Every nation has its own set of strengths and weaknesses when it comes to the economy and resources. This report also addressed how countries could work together to address the ecological crisis. Different nations have different roles to play here. Less developed nations generally have higher population growth and lower levels of per capita consumption. It's important in those contexts to figure out a way to, to rein in that population growth for both social and ecological reasons, um, while choosing a development pathway that has a sustainable level of consumption. Generally, that consumption will have to increase, but hopefully the impacts that are associated with it will not increase greatly. On the other hand, in more developed nations, our challenge is to lessen our consumption in some cases and to do it and, to, and of course, to lessen the impacts of that consumption and to make sure that we're not externalizing those impacts onto less developed nations, as we are currently through international trade, where we're importing many products that are quite damaging from an ecological perspective. So how do you go about creating policy that works for people around the world with all of their differing cultures, religions, environments, governments, and values? How can you come together and say this is an important problem that we all need to work together on, with also saying that we value you as a people, we value you as a society, and we value your natural environment? And how do you put this together without dictating to each country that this is what you need to do? For sure, policy implementation is very context-dependent, right? The things that work one place are not necessarily going to work in another. So that's always a huge challenge. Um, another added challenge is the constraints of the report itself. We were asked to provide policy-relevant evidence without being policy-prescriptive. That is, don't tell countries what to do. Let them figure it out themselves. So that's a very fine line to walk. And so one of the things that we did in approaching the report is say, you know, are there sort of broad brush things that we can say that we think generally apply across different contexts that are worth paying attention to for different countries? Um, and then what lessons can we learn from policy implementation in the past? So can we evaluate what's worked and what's not and then let countries decide maybe to do those sorts of policy experiments on their own? That was our way of kind of threading this, this difficult needle. So in terms of the broad brush things that we said countries can be thinking about, um, we basically said there's there's four really general ways to approach policy that would help us um, get a little bit closer to these sustainability goals of, of transforming our system. Um, and that is that we need policy that's integrative, that is stop treating environment policy as a thing done by the environment ministry, but really thread it across all of your policies, right? Don't silo it, make sure your finance ministry is involved and so forth. So integrative policy is number one. Um, the second one is make policy that's informed, um, like know what you're doing before you do it. And that seems really obvious. Um, but I think your listeners would be surprised how much policy gets passed with very little evidence of what is even needed. Um, you know, no sort of systematic monitoring, no sort of collection of evidence, or if the evidence is there, it's not used in the policy implementation itself. So do a better job of 
using different types of knowledge and monitoring systems and so forth. That's number two. The third thing follows from that, and that is have policy be adaptive. That is, um, have it be based on learning and experimentation and feedback and monitoring. So when you find out something's not working for your specific context, you can then change. Um, but in, the, in a lot of countries, once you have a law passed to sort of go back and redo it, it's actually really hard. And the U.S. is a perfect example of this. Um, and so that sort of adaptive governance is a real challenge, but we think it holds a lot of potential for helping us deal with um, these issues uh, more comprehensively. And finally, the fourth thing is to be inclusive. That is, when you're talking about policy, get all your stakeholders at the table, have lots of different actors and interests and values represented, not just you know the richest people or the largest industries or the ones with the most political clout. So if you can make policy that's more inclusive, um, the evidence is you're going to have better outcomes. So we think those are good tools that all countries can learn from. And then the specific context of what policy works in what place, a lot of that's going to be sort of trial and error, learning from past um, experiments and so forth. One really cool aspect of this report is that it also took the knowledge and opinions of the indigenous people. Indigenous people are often viewed upon as the ones who are cutting down the trees or overhunting, but this isn't always the case. And they also have a huge amount of local knowledge. Folks in the report try really hard to get um, indigenous peoples and local communities uh, represented. Um, and I'll just give an example of perhaps the classic old protected area was international money comes in and the idea is kick all the local people out so they'll stop knocking over the trees. Um, and inclusiveness can have, I think, at least two dimensions. One is fairness, but the other is actually effectiveness. So you might think that's unfair. I think we've also found that sometimes it's ineffective. If you uh, basically ignore local demands and rights, often people will not respect your institution, such as your protected area. So you'll find examples where even when you allow some local stakeholders to do some clearing in a, in a forest, they actually save more forest anyway because they try to enforce the local rules. And indigenous lands around the world, not only are they huge, but they've also actually done a pretty good job holding off developments. What we're talking about is really a massive change in the way that we run our economies, in the way that we run our governments, that is apparently necessary if we're going to reach sustainable trajectories. And the, the kinds of changes that we're talking about are, on the one hand, really quite bold and Yet they're also so not part of many conversations. For example, we just had a federal election here in Canada. Many of the kinds of things that we were calling for in terms of levers and leverage points for sustainability were not part of those conversations. And yet at the same time, the tools that we're talking about, they're not rocket science. They're not actually that difficult or controversial. Right. Things like the crucial importance of transparency in, in, in governance and decision making. Right? Like that's something that we can all agree that that's really important. And yet it, some of these many of these issues are not making their way into debates about how to proceed in terms of law and policy for the sake of governing appropriately. Um, so what's really needed is to think about them together, to think about how they work together, and to not let some of these really important structural changes to escape us. 
The ecological crisis might make you feel really hopeless. It's more bad news from the science world, you may think. The problem seems too big to do anything about. But it's important not to give in to despair. If there was nothing to be done, we would have no need for this 1,000-page report on environment degradation. I think a lot of your listeners probably feel despair and worry when they hear about reports like this. There's a sort of ongoing litany of um, all of the terrible things that our planet is facing. And I know that that can weigh very heavily on people, especially young people. Um, They could feel like there's nothing they can do. Um, And one of the things I want to say is that it's up to us. The pathway that we choose going forward is entirely up to us. It is not preordained. It is not too late. Um, So when we talk about a million species being at risk of extinction, they are at risk. They are not extinct yet. And so that means that everything that we do going forward makes a difference. So a lot of people say, well, what can I as individuals do? And that's an important question to ask. There there are many things that we can do, but that's not the sufficient question. The question is, what can we as communities, what can we as a country, what can we as a global community do? Um, Because a lot of these changes are going to come from structural changes. It's not going to come from a person taking a a reusable um, bag to the grocery store. It's not going to be little actions like that. It's going to be us coming together as policy activists and getting people to change the way our structures and our incentives and our policies are developed. So it's a lot of things. I know it can be very overwhelming at times, but my message is it's not too late. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find more information on the web at sparkdialogue.com and Facebook and Twitter and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. The podcast will take a hiatus at the end of the year, but check back in early February for more episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Solar Fractal by Corkstar, Renovation by Airtone, Chords for David by Pix, Night Rain by Airtone, and Too Cool by Kevin McLeod. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.